save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. It is my distinct pleasure to have conservation legend Tony Fitzjohn with us today. As a brief background, at a young age, Tony teamed up with George Adamson, remember Born Free and Elsa the Lion, to reintroduce lions back into the wild, and with some great success in Kenya's northern frontier district, a wild and arid landscape perfect for lions and rhino. At the camp outside Meru National Park, Campi Yasimba, also known as Camp of the Lions. After two decades, 30 lions and a dozen leopards rewilded successfully, this program came to a very sad ending in the late 1980s when George was killed and Kenya fell into the throes of civil unrest and the poaching wars. Cora and Campi Yasimba was burned to the ground. The elephant, rhino, and lions were decimated. Tony was immediately invited by the Tanzanian government to help reclaim and restore the Mukamazi Game Reserve, which had been overrun by cattle and drought. Thus born was the George Adamson Wildlife Preservation Trust, and over the past 25 years, Tony and his wife Lucy and a team of dedicated staff and conservationists, with a foresight not known in those days, restored the overgrazed, overrun, drought-stricken landscape of Mukamazi to its former diversity. The wildlife has returned, and just a few years ago, Mukamazi was elevated to national park status and is now home to Tanzania's only rhino sanctuary, bringing in rhino from both the Czech Republic and Britain's Port Lim Zoo to rewild the landscape and form a breeding catalyst to increase the population of both white and black rhino. Mukamazi is also the only wild dog breeding and release program in East Africa. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome you. Hello, Tony. Morning to you, Annie. Good morning to you, and it's such a thrill to have you here. I've been, we've been working together for several years, so I'm thrilled to have finally caught up with you and got you on Our Wild World. Well, thanks for having me. Very grateful. Absolutely. The work you do, your story, it's all amazing, and it's incredible, and beyond all of that, it's critically important. So why don't we start with you telling our audience a little bit about this amazing journey? Um, goodness, where do I start? Um, uh, I, was, I was raised in England, and at a very young age when I was in England, I read a Tarzan book um, about, uh, about Africa probably the most inaccurate reflection of what went on in the African continent ever. Um, but it, it just hit something inside of me. And I decided that when I was old enough, I was just going to take off for Africa and go off into the uh, jungle or whatever was there. Um, and because I wanted to live with and talk to and communicate with the animals. I could have done without the monkey, I think. But... Um, that that was um, that that was my little dream, and I, it was just shelved at the back of my mind. Um, after school, I uh, I joined a dairy company, 
for a couple of years, and they sent me on an outward bound course. And my instructor had been a game warden in the Serengeti for 15 years before in independence. And, and this just completely re-triggered me again to, uh, to get head off to Africa. But even the people that took me seriously said, well, Tony, we'd love to help you, but you're 30 years too late. Luckily, I've never listened to anybody in my life, and um, I found myself on a boat one day heading for South Africa first, where I had a, where I had a maiden aunt, um, and then slowly started my journey through the continent, um, um, through many, many countries, ending up in Kenya, where by great good fortune, and this is cutting a very long story short, it's all in my um, autobiography, Born Wild, that Random House put out a couple of years ago. Um, but um, I found myself linked up with George Adamson in uh, northeastern Kenya, um, where he was continuing the work that he started with Born Free. Um, so you were a, a young, uh, kind of wild whippersnapper. You were like in your 20s. Um, I re- recall, and I'm, thank you so much for mentioning Born Wild. It's a fabulous, fabulous book, and I suggest anybody and everybody to pick it up. It's, um, it's not just an autobiography, but it's more than that. It is a rousing, rousing story. And the opening paragraph, which I will not give away, is, is a stunner. So it's worth reading. Um, but as this young, wild young man... Um, one of the lines that we've always, often talked about that I've heard you say is working with the lions, and let's bring up Christian here briefly, the YouTube sensation of the two young Londoners who um, had that young lion and raised him in London and released him back into the wild at Campy Asimba with George. And uh, wasn't it sort of that you and Christian kind of grew and helped each other? Um, yeah, um, very much so. Um, uh, I arrived at George's about six, seven weeks after um, that footage had been shot. Uh, Christian had got too big for England, so about 11 months, they, um, by great good fortune, he was shipped off to Africa to join George. And George, very much on his own, um, set up a pride of 11 lions from different sources throughout Kenya and um, that were orphaned and put a pride together. But by the time I'd, I arrived there, just over a year later, um, uh, his pride was down to three lions. Um, Ace and John had come in for a day to film that reunion shot and gone again. And George was down to three lions, Christian and two females, Lisa and Juma. Um, I think in the very first night I arrived at George's, I knew that I got to the place I wanted to be. It was incredibly simple. George came out of the mist, uh, the mess, sorry, um, sort of uh, with a halo of a paraffin pressure lamp behind him, looking like an Old Testament prophet. There was a lion pacing up and down outside the wire compound because the people were fenced. Um, and there was just something about it. It was completely clear sky. There were stars everywhere. It was, it was magical. Um, and, you know, within a couple of days, I was introduced to Christian, um, who, um, first of all, 
um, took uh, uh, took uh, wanted to sort of play with me, but we soon sorted that out. Um, and Christian was um, very much uh, didn't know what he was doing. He was growing up with these two very slightly older females. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, so Christian and I became the best of pals because he couldn't roughhouse George. George was just too old. Um, and, and we grew up together, and I saw the bush through his eyes, and I gave him uh, all, the, all the protection I could uh, to bring him to maturity and, and become a big lion. Um, with George just sort of chuckling at the side and I think rather enjoying it all. So the two of you actually gave each other's life back. I think so. I mean, it's uh, it's maybe a bit. I don't think it's far fetched to say that. I wouldn't we, say that at all. We, so, we certainly did. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And no, we certainly did. I mean, and and George too. I mean, George was the most wonderful uh, man. Very quiet. He'd never he'd never sort of teach you anything. He'd just, he'd show you what he did and what went on, and it was up to you to pick it up and take it from there. Well, but, Tony, you know, it still takes a very, very special kind of person to be able to do the work that you do. A lot of people would love to get in and interact with a lion. How many times at a zoo do you see people say, oh, I want one of those? And we know the problems of the exotic uh, wildlife pet trade. But to do this in the wild, it takes a strength of character a physical strength and a willingness to live without conveniences. And Campy and Simba certainly had very, very few conveniences. So I could go talk with you forever about this, and maybe we can uh, come back again and talk some more. But right now, um, we're with Tony Fitzjohn, uh, founder of the George Adamson Wildlife Preservation Trust and uh, the man behind Mukamazi National Park. So stick with us, and we'll be right back after the break. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back to Our Wild World and my amazing guest, Tony Fitzjohn, uh, a man of many talents. And uh, we're going to find out some of what these talents are and what is required in uh, bringing back a game reserve area, which is typically defined as a place set aside for game and usually in Tanzania that also included being a hunting block. So what are... You've been in in this game of conservation from the ground up for many years, and um, by the seat of your pants, I would add. So what are some of the most impactful changes you've seen over the past decades from the time you spent at Cora and how things were done then at Campia Simba, and to how things were done when you first got to Mukamazi? Um. Well, let me just correct you on one thing, Ellie. Um, thank you for all the praise and stuff. But uh, um, I think, I, you know, what I did in the early days was was uh, born out of a, a sense of desperation, which then turned into um, a commitment and a dedication that, uh, that has lasted with me in, until this day. But when I arrived in Africa um, and joined George in 1970, um, there were it look it still looked like the wildlife was going to go on forever um there were rhinos all over the place um, national parks and game reserves weren't the only repositories of, of wild animals and unspoiled habitat um and it was um it was a wonderful wonderful scene going on cora was full of rhino every other day we get charged by a rhino um, as we were tracking our lions um, you know, there was poaching, uh, there was demand. Um, I think the biggest worry we had when we got to Cora was there were no leopards left because leopards had been trapped out or shot or poisoned um, for for the coat craze in the 1940s, uh, etc. The fur trade, you mean? The fur trade, yeah. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and, um, uh, you know, we just thought this was going on. And then in 1974 came the first big push on the rhino horn. Blame OPEC. Um, suddenly, um, Yemenis were going back home from working in the oil fields in Saudi Arabia. They had a lot of money in their pocket, and the biggest status symbol they could buy was a dagger with a rhino horn handle. Um, and tens of thousands of rhinos must have um, uh, died. Succumbed. Yeah, and succumbed to, to fuel this trade. Um, and every night uh, we'd hear gunshots, um, uh, you know, and then the, it was the Somalis moving south who were well armed, um, and they would then uh, poison the carcasses to kill off the predators, planning to move their stock in later. Which is um, still happening today, but the rhino trade has sort of shifted to Thailand and Asia versus Yemen, correct? Very much so. I mean, the Chinese have come online big time. I think when they saw what the Yemenis were doing, um, their middlemen in Hong Kong, Taiwan, mainland China, with all their big stockpiles, um, had to up the price. They had to play catch-up 
um, because the middlemen want uh, as many rhino horns as they can, none left in the wild, so the price of their commodity just rocks, skyrockets. So thus born was pretty much the, um, the beginnings of the wildlife trafficking cartels, yeah? Yeah, it's always existed, I think. Yeah, I'm sure it's always existed, but it is, um, on on scale and scope today, it's bigger than it's ever been before. It's bigger than it's ever been before. It started off with the the slave traders, um, and it's got to where it's got today as as the world's uh, become more populated and expanded so much. So were there any rhino at Mukamazi? What was in Mukamazi when you first got there? When I go to Mukamazi in um, 1989, um, the previous three years' counts of elephant were 11 individuals, down from 4,000, eight, nine years before, um, and there wasn't a single rhino left, and there must have been at least, it's quite a thick bush, so difficult to count in those days, but there must have been at least a thousand, fifteen hundred rhinos there. There wasn't a single rhino left. That's that's astonishing. So um, you've been both applauded and um, lauded, and uh, I'm not going to and harassed. I'll use the word harassed for the methods that you. Im- Im- implemented in Mukamazi, which we won't get into now. There's several books about it. Um, So what we're hearing here is the story from Tony himself, the man who was literally on the ground having to deal with an overrun, decimated uh, game reserve. Uh, So what was some of the work involved that you had to do to just bring this piece of landscape, this critical habitat, back up to a functioning ecosystem to where you could, and we'll get into this soon, do what you're doing in Mukamazi today. What were some of the challenges that you faced? Um, well, let's go back a bit, uh, Ellie. Um, yes, I, I have been criticized. I have been um, put under a lot of pressure. I have, you know, I'm regarded as a bit of a maverick um, because, I don't know why, because I get things done, I think. Um, but that's all par for the course. Now, I'm going to upset you probably and a lot of, uh, a lot of your listeners now um, with the next statement because I feel that wildlife conservation is an art. Um, and it's the art of balancing development with communities. It's, uh, it's anti-poaching, balancing anti-poaching with education. Um, it's bringing together all the disparate things that need uh, to be done to keep uh, an area safe to preserve an area more or less as it was eons ago um, for the future um, and uh, and and to leave something for future generations i 'm driven now uh, now the time has has gone on by the fact i don 't want my kids turning around to me and saying uh, daddy you you were in the business, you knew what was going on why didn 't you do something um, and Certainly Mukamazi is a case in point of, of what has to be done. There were no roads, so we had to put in the roads. We started by hand. There were no airstrips. It had been a game reserve in the late 50s and slowly uh, uh, unraveled. Um, and the animal populations had to be pulled back. But I saw that could be done by protection. Um, Operational High, set up by the Tanzanian government in 1988, 
um, had chased all the cattle herders out of the area who had many other places to go. And, um, but they started coming back in again. So with a fairly dodgy uh, government department, which was the Tanzania's Wildlife Division at that time, um, we had to sort of try and make sense out of all of this, um, uh, get on with the infrastructure. You can't just turn around um, and blame government when things aren't working. You can't say, oh, well, it would go quite well, uh, but they haven't fixed the roads. I've always believed in being embedded uh, within the wildlife services of, of both uh, governments that I work for in Kenya and Tanzania. Um, and if they can't do the roads, then somehow I have to get it together to do the roads. If there aren't airstrips, we put them in. Um, if, some, if there isn't a proper community program, I'll initiate it. Um, and slowly, slowly, um, uh, we put the infrastructure in. Uh, we opened up some old tracks that we could find. Um, not many of them. We put in new tracks. Um, and I learned a lot in Cora in, in the early days from uh, George's brother, Terence Adamson. Um, and this was his speciality. So I had a little bit of background in that. We put roads up hills. We put a VHF radio repeater in so I could have contact with men in the field. And slowly, slowly, we opened up uh, Mukamazi to find out what was there, what needed to be done, and everything else. And after a couple of years, you know, uh, we, we realized that it's not the total answer, but getting on with our neighbors was very important. Um, we had to be seen as a good neighbor to them. So I've always felt that it's too late just to go to communities, talk to the guys on the street, my age or a bit younger, and say, um, let me change your minds. I'm not going to be able to do that. But you can get to the folks through their kids. So we started a school uh, program. Well, let's, but- let's, let's hold off on the, the outreach program for just a minute. We'll get into that. Um, and come back to what you've just been talking about the amount of manpower and infrastructure and development that's required to make conservation happen. Uh, we hear today people love animals, and uh, that's all well and good and important. But loving animals doesn't put money where it needs to go, and wildlife really doesn't need money. It doesn't have pockets. It's not going to go to the store. Where, where the funding is needed is in building this infrastructure and developing it. You've just told us about the engineering requirements, road building, fence building, security, community outreach, working with the locals, hiring staff. This is where the money goes. So I'm, I'm saying this so that our audience and our listeners can have an idea of what it takes financially and where your contributions go, the donors, where the contributions go into making conservation happen on the ground. So just, I'm not asking for a solid figure, but um, over these years of getting Mukamazi from, out of your own pocket from the government, from the locals, human resources and financial resources, financially, what kind of money are we talking about? And you can put it all together in one lump sum or just give us an idea of what it takes to run Mukamazi for a year, just so our listeners get an idea of where their contributions go. Um, if I put it together in one lump sum, it will give me such a fright. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder what I've been doing. We have put several million dollars, eight, ten million dollars, I would think, into Mukamazi over the past 25 years. Um, 
and and that's slowly and that's a build up and luckily I had the time um, the pressures that were there we overcame um, and a lot of my book is about that how we did it uh, the hurdles we came up against how we got over them who helped us and how we carried on um, but uh, that that was fine that was really exciting but now we've got up to a level where we do have a fenced rhino sanctuary, electrified rhino sanctuary, um, eight foot high with a cantilever, um, 50 kilometers of um, external fencing, um, and a very successful wild dog breeding, captive breeding and reintroduction program. And we still go on with development. Now Mukamazi has been made a national park. We work really well with Tanapa. They always try and meet us halfway. Um, uh, Tanzania National Parks, um, but we, we're, we're up at a level now where just to run the infrastructure, um, keep the machines running, keep the grass cut after the rains, the roads graded every three, four years, um, water pans being desilted, that's running at about $200,000 a year. Um, the Rhino Sanctuary, I think, must cost me in the region of about $370,000 a year. Um, the wild dog program is certainly around one hundred and thirty, hundred and forty thousand dollars a year, and every year, uh, in terms of outreach and environmental education programs, both with the schools and our school bus, that's costing us another one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, so we're running at six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year, um, uh, just to keep the operation up and running without. Uh, any more capital investments well that's that's thank you because to put it down into black and white so to speak with an actual dollar sign really helps people get an understanding of what it takes to make conservation happen on the ground it doesn't happen by itself it needs management it needs security it needs people it needs human resources so i'd like you to stick with us and uh, we're here with tony fitzjohn of the george adamson wildlife preservation trust and uh, talking about mukamazi rhino sanctuary and the uh, wild dog breeding program so stick with us and we'll be right back Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss with my special guest, Tony Fitzjohn. And we're talking about Mukamazi Rhino Sanctuary and what it takes to make conservation happen on the ground. So before the break, Tony, you gave us some solid understanding of the financial uh, obligations and commitments that must be made to make conservation happen. So I'd like to take a little moment here and tell our listeners where they can find more information about the George Adamson Wildlife Preservation Trust. You can find them online at um, GW, G-A-W-P-T, GAWPT, G-A-W-P-T.org. Is that correct? Um, yeah, and uh, we have another uh, slightly updated uh, website, which is wildlifenow.org. Okay, and... Um, uh, .com, I'm sorry, .com. .com. Wildlife.com, so, yeah. So, folks, check out those two websites, and you can also follow uh, Tony and what's going on at Mukamazi on uh, Facebook and on Twitter. So there's no reason you don't need to keep up to date on what's going on. You can also follow it on Our Wild World on LinkedIn and our Facebook page and Twitter. So had to get those in there. Um, Definitely, please, if you have some uh, uh, funds and you'd you'd like to get involved in making conservation happen, please send a donation to uh, George Adamson Wildlife Preservation Trust or you can send it to Wild Eyes Foundation and we will ensure it gets uh, to Tony. They've been a grantee of Wild Eyes for a couple of years and I have to get this in there we helped provide the fence posts the fencing the solar panels the um, generator and uh, the radio communications so all these rangers can stay in communication with each other and their housing to protect the rhino that are there so currently Tony how many rhino are at Mukamazi in the sanctuary um we've uh we started with no rhino. We brought four in from South Africa, then three more. Um, and we've been the recipients of rhinos from both England, the Port Limb Safari Park, and, and the Czech Republic, Dvokralov. Okay, wait um, one second. Back up a second. You said yes. you had no rhino there. Previously talked about how the rhino that were there before you got to Mukamazi had all been killed. So how did Mukamazi become the foremost leading rhino sanctuary in Tanzania? Um, well, it wasn't difficult because it's the only rhino sanctuary in Tanzania. <laughs> but still, um, that's, that's a huge undertaking. Yeah. Gorongoro and Serengeti are doing quite well. But we had to import the rhinos. There, were, there was nowhere else to uh, get rhinos from in Tanzania. They were, they were um, looking after the couple of populations they had left in the north. Um, Tanzania's rhinos have gone in under 10 years from 10, 12,000 to two dozen. Um, uh, so it was a critical situation. That's why I, I wanted to help the rhinos. That's why I wanted to help the wild dogs. They were, they were two animals that were in most need of help and the, that we'd lost or were losing. 
Um, and I had to import all these rhinos uh, from abroad um, to start the sanctuary. Okay, so that's, that's an interesting little tidbit right there. So you said the rhino came from the Czech Republic and... Um, in, in Britain, I believe it's the Port Lim Zoo. So these were captive rhinos in zoos that were not had never been in the wild before, and it was quite the undertaking in terms of not only logistics but in terms of willingness and cooperative efforts with these two countries to import rhino. Tell us a little bit about this transla- translocation. I it was quite the um, the setup. Um, it, it was amazing. I can't take any credit for it because Pete Morkel, um, our vet, um, organized uh, um, the whole uh, of the veterinary side of the translocation uh, from, the, from the safari park, from the zoo end, um, right into Mukamazi. Um, we had to organize the aircraft. Uh, the first two lifts we did from uh, uh, the exotic population of black rhino they had in South Africa. We flew directly into our strip um, in a big Antonov aircraft. That was uh, that was quite interesting. Um, and then um, on the two from Europe, uh, Martinair and then DHL helped us um, and provided aircraft uh, to bring them into Kilimanjaro, and we drove them in by road. Um, yeah, what a what a sign of the times that we have to do that to re-establish a rhino population. Um, the population has bred up. I don't like to talk about figures and how many we've got, but we do have nearly 25% of uh, Tanzania's population at the moment. Um, it's breeding, it's going very well, and the animals that we brought in from captive sources in Europe are doing very well, adapting to the wild immediately, and... Um, um, and proving uh, to to be very hardy and and adapt well. We do have to help them by putting in uh, tetsi targets to remove a lot of the tetsi flies, so that they're not overwhelmed uh, while they're building up their own resistance. Um, and it does mean enormous security. Just when we've managed to get this all together, we've managed to persuade zoos abroad to to give us animals um, because. They've always said this was part of their raison d'etre. It's never been more dangerous for rhinos in the wild uh, in East Africa. So we are really, um, really stretched and, uh, and have to be on the ball 24 hours a day uh, to protect these animals. So once again, um, I'd like our listeners to uh, realize that they can help uh, in conservation and help these rhinos by giving uh, your contribution, a donation, large or small, every little bit helps. And you can donate to G, G, George at GAWPT.org or Wildlife Now or Wild Eyes Foundation. And you can visit WildEyes.org and our website and go to the um, Mukamazi Project and learn more and see some great images about this rhino translocation. So, um, Tony, at this point, uh, when... So I, I've been and visited. It's an amazing place, and I completely understand uh, not giving specifics. And that reminds me of a little point for visitors. When you're photographing these endangered species in very secure areas, um, remove the geotagging from your images and don't tell 
when you post these images or share them, don't tell where these images came from because uh, poaching and the cartels are just as high tech, if not more so, as we are sitting here in our comfortable little uh, Western civilization homes that we don't need to be giving any details of where these rhino and these species are to be found and get that information into the wrong hands. So um, tell us a little bit, Tony, about the Wild Dog Program. Um, it's amazing. Wild Eyes uh, helped fund and support uh, the needs of these dogs. So tell us a little bit about uh, Tanzania's only uh, wild dog breeding and release program. Um, certainly, but if, if I can just go back very quickly. Um, yeah, I've seen too many big fundraisers going on in Facebook for various bits of kit and people putting out all sorts of information um, and they raise lots of money. Maybe we should go that route. I can't do it. Um, now, they raise all sorts of money for their needs um, and two weeks later they've lost a couple of rhino. Um, there are people trolling all these websites um, and social, uh, social media sites, um, just looking out where, where people are saying, look at me, look what I've got. So we do try and stay a little bit below the radar, but enough said there. And, um, and a further point on that, um, that, that you just made me think of is the fracturing of the donor funding community. Everyone keeps starting up new programs, new projects, which is all well and good, but it gives the donor, um, a bit of confusion of who do I donate to and how do I make sure my money is doing what it's supposed to do. So donors, listeners, uh, uh, people who care and love wildlife, do your due diligence and check out where you're sending your money to and um, be sure that uh, the percentages of where your contributions are going do end up on the ground doing the work that's needed. And um, I, for one can absolutely assure you that funding to Mukamazi will go to protecting the diversity, the landscape, the rhinos, and this little baby orphan elephant, Mr. Burr, and uh, the wild dogs. So do your due diligence, check, check into it, and please donate. Help us make conservation happen. So um, thanks for your point there, Tony. And security is a critical issue these days, as everybody knows. The headlines... Uh, rhino poaching and elephant poaching so tell us uh and wild dogs wild dogs are one of the most m m maligned species uh on on the face of the earth and it's it's endangered it's rare and but it's coming back so tell us a little bit about how you got started in the wild dog breeding and uh, reintroduction program yeah, they're not really even dog uh, dogs. They kind of look like dogs, but they they came off the family tree way down the bottom there years and years ago. Um, I think they're the animals that we first befriended that gave us security. We probably wore them and ate them. I don't know, but they they have been around for a very very long time, far longer than foxes and wolves and everything else. And they're a, they're a very social, very um, non-aggressive animal. They hunt in big packs. Um, and um, they've never never known, certainly in East Africa, they've never been known to harm a human being. And for some reason, I think because the colonial powers, when they came in, classified them as vermin, um, they were, every game warden's first job was to sort of shoot out the packs of wild dogs. Um, it took a very long time for more enlightened attitudes to come in, and by this time, they've been subject to um, 
many, many road kills, people driving at them, um, and an enormous amount of poisoning. And disease had come in as the populations of both stock and people had increased. Um, and inoculation schemes have been coming in. I think viruses must have mutated and, and gone across the divide there and, um, and hit the, the wild dogs badly. And their numbers were dwindling everywhere. Um, there are no total counts. You can't guess how many, a couple of thousand maybe, um, you know, in the whole of East Africa. I don't know. You can't, I don't really know where they find the figures, but there were very, very few. And it was Joan Root, um, the wife of the cinematographer, Alan Root, who drew my attention to the fact that we were about to lose another species. And although they were the subject of many a conference and cinema, a seminar, um, no one was actually doing anything. And I thought, well, let me, let me uh, see if we can do something to, to redress the balance here. Um, and we set up a captive breeding program with animals that we caught on the Maasai step. We brought in pups. Uh, we lifted the pumps when the folks were off hunting. Um, uh, they were being poisoned uh, by the tribesmen uh, across there. Um, and by doing this, we also uh, negated the whole uh, human-animal conflict that was going on there. And the dogs moved away and bred somewhere else. Um, but we bred them up and it took us... We, we had some successes with breeding, but it took us... Because they're captive, we have to inoculate um, we got on top of the rabies quite quickly, but the canine distemper, um, it took us 10 years to find a suitable vaccine that would work on the dogs um, because they don't respond to normal day dog vaccines um, like domestic animals do. And that was the hardest part to begin with. Now we're breeding very successfully. Uh, we've put back 100 dogs already. Um, I'm sure I've got more than a 60% survival rate, uh, which compares very favorably with, with what goes on in the wild. Um, and big packs are now being seen throughout Mukamazi and Savo coming and going because they have a huge range. Um, and it's wonderful uh, to see groups of these animals back in the wild, um, which um, previously weren't had just disappeared from their former range. We were about to lose another species and, and no one really cared. So it, it's, it's, it's been slow. It's been, it's uh, involved a lot of people and been quite an effort, but we are, we are now on top of, of um, returning dogs to the wild. And when people ask me how much longer it's going to last, and I, I, I just say forever. Uh, when, you're down, when you're down to, to those numbers, you don't just do a two, three-year study or little program and rub your hands and write a book or a paper and say it's over. Um, all these programs that we're doing, the rhinos, the wild dogs, even the infrastructure, even the education programs, whatever, they all have to go on forever. We have to keep up with the times. When we started in Mukamazi, um, we were working out of the 1950s handbook, and now we're reading the 2050 handbook. So that's... That, for our audience, that gives you an idea of what I've always said on this program, Our Wild World, that conservation is not a short-term linear process. It is a long-term uh, thinking process. It is multi-layered, multi-leveled. We're looking at landscapes in 
total here, not just a single uh, reintroduction of a single species that's been decimated, but how this species impacts its landscape, how it's needed, and the importance of creating a fully functional ecosystem, which Tony has magnificently been able to accomplish with the help of uh, Tanapa, the Tanzanian parks, and the government, and a lot of dedicated people and dedicated support to bring Mukamazi back to where it is. So stick with us. We'll be right back. There's more to come. And this is Tony Fitzjohn and Ellie Weiss. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back with Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Tony Fitzjohn. Right before the break, Tony, you made an incredible statement, which says a lot about how conservation has changed. You'd mentioned you were working from a 1950s handbook uh, and getting up uh, to speed with a digital and technology technological age today where science does come into play but it also the science must be used as you had said earlier along with the the an art the skill and the art of making conservation happen data and research is all well and good we do need that information it teaches us about these species but what happens on the ground is usually by the seat of the pants no one size fits all so in terms of where conservation has come from the 1950s to uh, the 1970s when so many losses were happening to today where we have we're sitting in the middle of the sixth mass extinction um due to human impacts, climate change, and we won't get into the argument of where those causes are. I think we all know now. Um, but 
conservation on the ground has changed, and it requires a lot of outreach. So you have uh, and have built up an incredible outreach program, which we started to go into before, and uh, it's called uh, Rafiki Yafaru, uh, Friends of the Rhino. But it's about more than just uh, working with rhinos. So tell us about this outreach program and uh, how it's helped in terms of how conservation has changed and the needs today. Yeah, well, Ellie, let's let's put it in one little sentence. You know, animals don't need money. People do. Um, people need money to to safeguard these uh, these animals. The animals just get on with their lives and eat the grass or eat other animals and 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 do what they do. They're quite happy as long as their habitats are protected. Are protected, and the habitat protection is the most important thing of all. We're also living in the wild west. We're also talking about vast herds of, of cattle and goats and sheep um, that are increasing tangentially, moving through um, Africa and certainly in East Africa, um, and it's the great god cow. Well, that's um, happening all over the world. We're decimating our planet for cows. Yeah, um, and it's like when Jefferson said, go go west. You know, <laughs> you, you've seen the cowboy movies. Everything in, in front of them just got taken out, whether it was tribes whether it was wild animals, whether it was rivers, lakes, whatever, everything just got flattened with the big advance of cows. So, I mean, that, that is one of our major problems and something that we have to come to terms with and, and, and work deals on and, um, and all the rest of it. So, in um, effect, you're saying conservation, as you just said, is not really about the wildlife. The wildlife will do what it needs to do as long as it has space but conservation is about people creating um, social security, economic security and food security so this is what your outreach program uh, focuses on but you've built it up from scratch so um, how does how does how does it literally translate what is it that uh, Kifaru, uh, Rafiki Yafaru does? Um Animals need need space and peace and quiet. People need the money. Now, with with the communities, um, we started off wondering how to go about this, what to do. Um, and we decided that, that education was the answer. So conservation okay, okay. is about people, and you're working with the community to engage people into working with a, a mindset to live with wildlife. So how does your education program go about um, uh, incorporating these aspects? Um, you're not going to change the attitudes of people or communities uh, by talking about wild animals, by talking about uh, the economic benefit, uh, the foreign exchange, the employment of the country. Um, but you can get through to the communities through their children. Um, and it seemed very important to me that um, we had to get to the kids um, and say, look, you know, of a certain age, you know, in that sort of 14-year-old age group. Um, and so we stopped, but we didn't have much of an audience. A lot of the schools around Mokomazi were being, um, uh, had their classrooms underneath trees. Uh, they were shorter buildings. They were shorter classrooms. Um, they were short of teacher accommodation and we slowly started a program whereby we would help the schools increase their classrooms um, and, and all the other infrastructure that they needed. Um, we then built a complete secondary school 
with science labs in a local village called Kisiwani. Um, and I think that's the day I became heartfelt. When I pitched up at the school, the first 50 children were there. Um, I knew most of them. They'd been sort of stealing and sniffing glue on the streets uh, a couple of months before. Um, and here they were in uniform, standing in front of the buildings we were putting up. Um, and my contractors hadn't even finished the work. Um, it, that's when it became heartfelt, and I realized we were on the right track. Um, and there is this incredible, not just need for education, uh, but hunger for it. Um, and, and by feeding that, we can be most useful um, to the things that we believe in, too, and to, and to the national park that, that lives right next to them. We've gone on from, we went on from there. When the kids started turning around and saying, why is Tony doing this? We want to see what he's doing. We got ourselves a custom-made bus, and we bring children, about a 1,000 children a year in at the moment, uh, on school trips uh, to look around the park, to come into the Rhino Sanctuary, and we built a little classroom on top of a hill. Um, it, it's in a wonderful site, and... Um, um, we give them a day, we give them a video uh, run by Solar Power on, on the state of the Rhino. Um, and their educators are the Rhino Sanctuary Manager, are my operations manager, are the trackers themselves. Um, and what I'm looking for are the kids that turn around when they're leaving um, and looking at my guys and going, I want to be like them. That's what makes me feel good. Um, at the same time, we, re we needed to go a step further. Little small programs helping one village doesn't help. So we've helped about 40 schools. We've built a secondary school, and we're now in the process of building with partners a complete vocational training center um, to give the 85, 86% of people that never leave the villages after secondary school uh, a chance to develop a trade um, and go out into the world and, and earn their own livings and, and feel good about themselves. So, Tony, you've just highlighted um, the most true fact in conservation today. Um, never before has it been so succinctly stated that if you build it, they will come. In terms of bringing back the wildlife, uh, reinstating, rehabilitating, and restoring a landscape to bring wildlife back in, creating a, a rhino sanctuary and a wild dog breeding program, and on top of that, understanding that conservation is about people and providing uh, needs that people require to to that doesn't necessarily directly translate to uh, the security and the efforts and the infrastructure of uh, the, the sanctuary and the national park, but it builds a camaraderie and an essence of understanding that without these habitats and these animals, uh, there isn't a future for people. And you said it very well um, to create friendships between people and wildlife we must focus on the needs of people when we can fulfill those needs then we create room for rhinos so um, we have a few minutes left here uh, what are some what would be the most important thing you would like our audience to take away today in terms of everything that you've done mukamazi Draw it from whatever comes off the top of your head. What what do you feel is most important to make um, a world, our world, a better place for wildlife and for people? Um, I don't think it's so much what I've done, Ellie. I think it's just to remind everybody that although times have changed, 
although uh, we've lost an enormous amount of wildlife uh, and and the fact the demand from China and Vietnam um, for elephant for tusks and rhino horn is massive there still are some huge huge areas I mean Mukamazi is is 1500 square miles uh, it's contiguous with Sabo which gives gives us 10,000 square miles of, of ecosystem if you can describe it as that um, uh, there are these wonderful places left in Africa, especially East Africa. Um, you get somewhere like the Serengeti where you have these wide open plains with these endless horizons where the wildlife goes on forever. And we cannot afford to lose this. Um, there's nowhere else in the world that wildlife can be seen in such abundance and with such ease. Um, and where we are also reminded really of where we all came from in the first place. I think the human psyche needs that. We need wilderness. We need to know where we came from. And it's incredibly important, um, more than anything, that we help to create the political will within these countries um, so that these governments uh, will save their own wildlife. We can only do so much. We're not saving the wildlife. We're doing the best we can. We're getting in people's way, maybe... Um, and maybe we're holding the line. Um, but these governments themselves need support, um, they need encouragement, um, and more than anything, they need the next generation coming up um, that have had proper education um, and been made aware of uh, what they're going to lose if they don't look after it. Please help them. Thank you, Tony, and you said it very succinctly. Um, we, working in conservation, we're not um, the saviors. It takes people. It takes people like my audience here and everybody out there to do our bit. And it does make a difference. You can make a difference with every dollar, with every cent. And it takes a, a societal will to help move our political will in the right direction that our environment, our earth, and our wildlife are critical to our future, not only in terms of resource management and landscape architects, but in terms of our human psyche. Our non-human neighbors are important and critical to our own well-being and our very survival. So, Tony, um, we're out of time today, but I'd like to thank you so very much for joining us, and uh, it's been a pleasure as always um, thanks for having me Ali and um, and uh, you know hope we talk again soon absolutely we're always going to be in touch and um, I'll we'll chat soon and uh, Safari and Gemma for the rest of your trip and take care and say hello to everyone back in Tanzania for me so that's it for today welcome to our wild world this is Ellie Weiss uh, join us on Facebook. Uh, follow the George Adamson Wildlife Preservation Trust, Facebook, Twitter, and their websites. And we'll be ne back next week with more of Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <music>